guys yesterday but uh we had one more run to the the magical hellacious hellscape that is costco uh leading up to the uh 2023 workshop that we'll be doing next weekend and and middle of next week forward and uh if you've ever been near that place on a weekend it's just awful and so it's usually better during the week one o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday was not as good as I thought it would be, especially with two kids in tow, but we made it work. So that's why I wasn't here yesterday. Now, rest of the week will be normal. Uh, then going into next week, we will have rewinds all week during the workshop. There's just so much, th- so much to be done during a workshop week, even before it actually begins on Wednesday. That's just what I do all the time. If you didn't tune into the workshop or the uh, rewind yesterday, you may have missed that announcement. I'll go ahead and give that again today. Uh, we have gone to a four-show work week here, and I have enjoyed that adjustment. It hasn't been normal, and somebody's saying normal in quotes for a different reason down there right now, but uh, it hasn't been normal since I've done it, though, because I decided to do it right in the middle of, like, workshop season, other workshop season, travel to Camden, Tennessee season, all of that stuff. So there's been all these disruptions in the middle of it, but it's definitely working for me. Um, Probably more so because of that. But I don't like not having a fifth show. So I came up with a way to do a fifth show that will allow me to work about one hour a quarter, that's three months, and have that whole quarter done. It's going to be called Friday Flashbacks. So it's Friday Flashbacks. It's exactly what it sounds like. On Friday, we do a flashback. How is this different than a rewind? Well, a rewind is something that I put a lot of thought into. Uh, I pick out the episodes. I'm like, hey, you know what I need to make sure that I do with this rewind is, you know, if I'm going to be doing three or four in a row, especially or like a whole week, like theme them somehow, come up with some concept, and then i got to – dig through 3,000 plus episodes to find. And then I got, oh, that seems like a good one. I got to search for it. I already did that one. I got to pick a different one. Then I have to record somewhere between five and 15 minutes of new material at the front end of it. And so the rewind, which saves me a ton of work, is actually more work than you would think. So I'm like, can I templatize something without it being crap? And I think I can. And this is what how Friday Flashback is going to work. So I've made up a thumbnail already image, and all I do is change it from, like, episode one to two to three. It's the same one over and over again. I already made the first 12 for the first quarter. Yeah. Uh, They are going to be 100% um, templatized to the point of they're going to be interviews only. That makes this really easy because right at the point when I say, so-and-so, welcome to the Survival Podcast. That's my chop on the front end. And when I say goodbye, instead of all the closing housekeeping that's in the past and doesn't need to be repeated. That's the chop. There'll be a pre-recorded intro and outro. That's it. I can literally then grab an interview, chop it, recompile it and upload it about one minute a piece, about one minute a piece. And then the other thing is, since we're doing interviews, I'm going to go back to the very first interview, which I believe was Glenn Tate from 299 days, whatever the first one was, I'll find it. 
And then all I'm going to do is every interview we ever did, unless it was a bomb or it was something very temporal going forward. So I don't have to think about it. Oh, this is the next one. This is the next one. This is the next. We have 10 years of that. 10 years of that, at least, before we would catch up to today. And then we'll have 10 more years of interviews that we could do that with. And I look at this and I go, you know, there is so much value in our past interviews. There's so much I've forgotten that I remembered that I forgot back there. And it's the only way we're going to bring it forward. And Hunter is absolutely right. He says, you know, there's a search feature on the website. There is. But I can tell you right now that the old episodes do not get a ton of love. They don't. And when I do rewinds, I tend not to. I don't always not do re, uh, interviews, but mostly I don't do interviews. I would say 98% of rewinds are non-interviews. So this is a great way to use past content, to give you something to listen to on your Fridays. No commercials, dramatically abbreviated. There'll probably be some level of a commercial for MSB and the preamble that's stock, and then maybe a little T-spaz teaser at the end. But you're talking maybe two minutes on both sides of that and done. And it will be the show notes will be this is based on this. Here's the original. Bye bye. Like it's going to show notes are going to be like that big. Really, really simple. Cut and paste. Done. So I think it's a cool idea. Hope you guys enjoy it. If not, well, nobody listens to it. I'll stop doing it. But I have a feeling it'll be listening. I'm going to preload it for a quarter and just let it ride. And uh, that's a way to understand, uh, you know, how to automate your business to a degree, especially when you have so much of a catalog of content from the back. It's a shame not to use that stuff. Anyway, let's uh, get into what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about what if you don't want to get out of the city? And I, I have to use the word want. And I'll explain why when I tell you the story behind this. This started with a very emotional person who seemed like she was, one, torn for the safety of her own family, and two, like maybe the people she admires, like I hate saying this, but myself, I my ego is not as big as I think some people think. It's always weird to me that people admire me. Uh, Nicole Sauce, John Willis, et cetera. We kind of have this common theme of get out of the cities. And it almost felt like when she was telling her story, she didn't want to let us down, which is a big mistake. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And why living in the city is not the worst thing in the world and how there are some trade-offs that can be found with maybe not really in the city, maybe not really in even the suburbs, maybe like me, the urban rural fringe, and some of the advantages of having large populations nearby versus some of the disadvantages that we talk about all the freaking time. With that, before we get on to it, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ridge Wallet. I've been with these guys. It'll be six years this January that Ridge Wallet uh, has been sponsoring the show. That's a pretty long time in the world of podcasting. When they first came to me, they had three products. They had a backpack, they had the wallet, some different colors and things like that, and then they had a little phone charger. That was it. That was all that they had uh, when they first showed up. They sent me all that stuff. I thought it was great stuff, and I'm like, I don't know if this really fits my audience, at least at the time. I don't know if this wallet thing, and now I've been carrying that wallet for almost six years, and I love it, and I will never, ever, ever carry an old school billfold again. It's just a big lump on your butt. It's just not as efficient and it doesn't do anything to protect all those RFID tags from being, you know, sucked up by sniffers and things like that that are out there. You can literally steal people's information off those cards with about 15 bucks, 20 bucks worth of shit you can buy on eBay. 
So you need to protect all of those credit cards and everything that has those RFID tags. You need to protect that stuff and shield it. If you wrap it in titanium, it is shielded. Uh, next up today, JM Bullion. Uh, I've been recommending silver and gold as part of your wealth assurance uh, program since I started the show. Going all the way back to 2008, I would say you should have somewhere between 5 and 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. And I would always couch that to I'm a 5% guy. Uh, 10% is kind of my upper limit because I don't like to see people get overloaded in any one asset class. But silver and gold have a multi-thousand-year history of holding value and being used as money. And the reason you should use JM Bullion, well, there's many of them. One, they support this show and have since I, right when I first moved here is when we picked them up. That was over 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I picked them up. They're still here. That's a big thing, right, in the world of podcasting, that kind of support. Better pricing than like Monex, Atmex, Lear Capital, all the big silver houses that are out there. I have direct connection to the president of the company. His name is Michael. Uh, if there's ever a problem and I need to escalate it to that level, I can. It's not something I would do instantly because did you even ask customer service for help? But if you have a problem and it's not getting resolved, I get it taken care of like that. They also ship all orders over $200 for free. So I don't know why you'd buy your silver and or gold from anywhere else. And remember, as we head uh, toward Christmas and the holidays and all that stuff, you know, Kids get so much crap. I just think back to when you were a kid. All the crap your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, your uncles, friends of friends, whatever, gave you for Christmas, birthdays. How much of it do you even remember, and how much of it do you still have? Silver and gold are lasting value. Kiddos, you know, if you, you can get some of the rounds with some cool stuff on it and all, and, like, we got my, my grandson a treasure chest with locks. So we can keep all his stuff in it. He's like, can I put my other stuff in there? Of course you can, you know. Uh, and you can make it exciting now to a degree, but they'll really appreciate it when they grow up and they realize the value that they still have versus all the plastic crap that's in a landfill somewhere. All right, so let's get into this. I want to start off with kind of how this episode even came to be today. So I guess I was in I was in Camden. I had already done my presentation, which was on artificial intelligence, because that's what Nicole asked for. And she had me on the second day on a panel. I was on a panel with uh, Joel Salatin, uh, John Willis, Scully, and Tim Toolman Cook. So we're sitting up on the stage, and it was either the first or second person to ask a question, this young woman. And she, you could tell she was going to get choked up, and she got more choked up as she went. And she said that, you know, she hears – People like ourselves, specifically myself, John Willis, and Nicole, talk about getting out of the cities. But she can't leave right now. She eventually gets to where she has Philadelphia as where she's living. And she had this real ache. You could tell a real ache. And she said, I can't leave. We can't leave. And then she started explaining what they were doing. And they were working with lower-income families. Wherever she lives in Philadelphia, it's not like downtown Philly or like West Side Philly or whatever, because they have like two acres. This is starting to sound pretty not so bad to me. Now, I don't know. Maybe it's two acres in an old warehouse district and they're surrounded by slums. I, I don't really know. I didn't get that much information. You can only take so much time during a panel to deal with stuff like this. But two acres in Pennsylvania ain't bad. In fact, while she was talking, Joel was sitting next to me. So I, I lean over to Joel and I'm like, hey, you can probably grow three times on two acres in Pennsylvania what I can grow on three acres in Texas. 
And Joel knows a little bit about my place. So he's like, she could probably grow six, eight times what you can grow. And he's not wrong. You know, it's like as far as growing food, you've got USDA zone six, Pennsylvania. It's some of the most productive uh, area in the world is being able to grow your own food. And she continues on and, and eventually gets to the point like a person that's standing up in front of that many people that's nervous and emotional. You kind of, OK, we're going to stop you there. I, I think I get your question, you know, because otherwise the whole panel will just be them telling you stuff. Right. So uh, I, I said, OK, I think I can help you with where you're at now. I said, let's start off with let's change. I don't want to or I don't I, I can't or we can't. I don't want to yet and she nodded her head because she had talked herself into the fact like right there that's why i let her go and everybody else did too she had explained enough to explain to herself this wasn't a can't this was a choice and this is really 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 important to understand there is no i can't do a thing there is i'm choosing not to do a thing unless it's like i can't matter energy transport myself to the planet pluto right because uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says not a planet anymore, and we don't have matter energy transplant for it. But if it's something anybody can do, then it's something that you could do, too, if you really wanted to, like a move. And Sean Mills, yes, I can see you. Uh, your questions from Facebook uh, here in my back office on StreamYard. You cannot see my comments, though, unless, like Marco's here, I put them up on the screen. That doesn't go two ways like it does on YouTube. But I can see you and anybody that is on Facebook, whatever reason you're there, if you want to ask me questions, you can type them into the live stream and I will see them as long as we're still live. All right. So I said, you know, first of all, I think you need to realize that you have to do what you want, not what Jack Spierko wants, not what John Willis wants, not what anybody up on the stage wants, not what Joel Salton says to do. Like you, it's your life. You're the one that has to make the choices with what you do. And there's not, you know, not everything about being in the city is bad. And I, I tried to switch her on to somebody, and we're actually going to be bringing this this gal on very soon. Uh, this gal, she calls herself Blue Lotus, and I believe that's her right there. Uh, and she's awesome. And I'm like, you have a tribe sitting right where you live. This these people are active in Philadelphia. I met her down at John uh, Bush's exit and build last year, and she's finally going to be on the show. I really don't know why it's taking so long. I told her back then, if you want to be on the show come be on the show and uh, fill out the form. And I heard from somebody about two months ago that said, Hey, and do you know her and whatever? Like, yeah, I know her. I said, you could be on the show. And they knew her. So like Jack said, get the form. And so she submits the form. I'm like, but this girl is a gorilla gardener. She has this whole group of people and they're planting gardens all over Philadelphia. And their slogan is plants don't need permission. And that's then the sub line would be, and neither do you. So if you want to plant, plant. You want to grow food, grow food. I'm like, so first of all, like, that's just an example of one person or one group of people you can tie into. And this Blue Lotus gal, I don't know her proper name, I guess, or what have you, but she's going to be a rock star in, like, the permaculture activism space. Rather than sitting around like a lot of people in her generation and bitching about a thing, she's out getting stuff done that actually matters in actual people's lives. So I'm like, the more people that you tie into, the better that you're going to feel about your choice to stay where you are. And I gave her some other advice. And all of that was condensed into maybe 90 seconds because when you're on a panel with five other people, you have to be quick and we have to get the next person up, et cetera. So I'm doing this entire show 
to help answer her question, but I also feel like it's a question that probably a lot of people in this audience have different versions of. And someone at the very beginning of this, before I even, um, there it is, even started, Tori said, never did I ever think Jack would have this episode. That's probably another reason that it's important that I have this episode, okay? Because I don't want anybody hurting, right, because they're not doing what I advise. Like, if I trigger you because I use a word you don't like, you know, like this morning I was talking to my grandson. Actually, my wife was talking to my grandson. She was getting ready to leave and letting him stay home while she left. And I'm in here and he's out there doing his schoolwork, hopefully for his sake. And she was asked, I don't even know what it was. There was like two or three things that she wanted him to take care of by the time she got home. I think one was get a package that was left out by the fence. And there was like two other things. And he was sitting there staring at her, giving her what I call the retard stare. And this is something that I'm sure my grandson is not the only teenager that does this. This is where you're talking to them and telling them exactly what you want to do. And they look at you like this. And they don't say a word, right? And if you didn't, if you didn't, if you're not on the video, you listen to the audio, you'll have to imagine the blank stare that you get from a 12 year old when you're telling them you need something done. Now, the purpose of the stare, I know full well what it is. Kids never understand that we used to be them, right? Is to feign ignorance so that if they don't do it, when you ask them about it, they can say, I didn't understand or anything. So I broke through that. Now, if I'm telling that story and because I use the retard word, you get offended and triggered. And that hurts you. I don't care about your delicate little sensibilities. That's why I have that little segue there to explain what I'm coming from. But when I say something like, hey, you know what? If you want to be in the best shape of your life, get on board with like a keto or primal or paleo or somewhere in that realm of diet. Right. And you're like, you know what, Jack? I'm perfectly healthy. I'm happy with my lab labs. I'm happy with my health. I work out every day and I eat something more carb heavy. I, I don't want you to feel bad about that. I don't want you. Now, if you're excessively obese, you have type 2 diabetes, you're on four different medications, and you tell me that, I'm going to tell you, hey, bullshit. And then what I always say if you're not going to do it my way, do something. Don't keep living this way. Don't keep living this way, right? And then complain about it, right? And don't put yourself in an early grave. And then one day your kids are going to lose you long before they should because you don't want to eat well. And uh, Hunter is asking me right now, have you thought of a blood work lab vendor? Um, yeah, we have Green Wisdom Health, Dr. Stephen Lewis, that can order labs very inexpensively, and he offers discounts. And he's in the MSB already just on that. But anyway, to get my point, right? let's make it a little more uh, materialistic to kind of make this point, I love my Dodge Challenger. I think Dodge designed one of the ultimate modern muscle cars in the Challenger. I think it looks so much better than a Mustang, and I think it looks so much better than the modern Camaro, especially the way the Camaro looks from the rear. The Camaro looks decent from the side and the front, really nice-looking car. Camaro from the rear looks like a European sedan, right? You know, it just it doesn't look very good, right? It's just not a good, I'm sorry, it's not a great. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't buy a Camaro because Jack Spirigo said so? 
No. So you shouldn't live somewhere because Jack Spirico disagrees with you. You shouldn't be emotionally traumatized. And I'm not picking on the person. I'm saying I, influencers, sometimes we forget how much influence we have. And we say things that really hit people hard. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes that can be bad. Because if I tell you you should be doing something that you literally cannot do, and maybe the reason you can't do it is you've chosen not to do it, right? And you, you and, and even when you say can't, in your heart, you know it's really that the reason you can is you chose not to. Then you start questioning yourself, and then it can become emotional, especially for a person who's surrounded by 500 other people. She's living in the city, and all of a sudden, you guys have ever been to any of these events, right? You come here, it's like 70, 75, 80 people, and all of a sudden, you're surrounded by people that actually think like normal, clear-thinking human beings. And all the things you want to talk about, they want to talk about, too, and it feels different. And you, then you're really thinking, but I'm stuck. You're not stuck. You're choosing it. And I'm telling you, I really feel that this woman and her family were choosing it. Because they were working with people who needed someone like them to help them. And they were trying to make the world a better place. And that is a purpose in life that is hard to beat. And that person probably should not leave right now. And I'll tell you why. Even if logistically it's a better choice. If you're not in the mental state to make a major move in your life and you do it, you will end up regretting it. And here's how I know this. No matter where you go, you will face animosity. No matter where you live, things will go wrong. Things will happen. Things will be bad. Things will be horrible at times. And things will be wonderful at times. If you're somewhere you have chosen to be and you're fully aware that you've chosen to be there, and you've chosen to be there through logical, rational thought, then you'll deal with, adapt to, and overcome those bad things. Embrace the good things. But if you are somewhere that you really didn't want to be, but you were talked into it, every bad thing will be in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, because you made that wrong decision. So you have to be ready to make life-altering decisions like that. And it's okay if you're not. You just need to be clear. It's not because you can't, right? It's not because you can't. And I know well, some people have, like, my husband doesn't want to leave. Well, you have a choice. Leave your husband or stay with your Like, I understand that. That's that's not what I'm talking about. When when everybody's open to the concept and we've had the discussion and we decide we can't, we haven't decided we can't. We've decided we don't want to. And the reason that's so important is a distinction. Once you realize you've decided not to, you can analyze why, and you can maximize the benefit of not leaving or not doing whatever the thing is that you said you couldn't do, but what you really meant was I don't want to. Because your emotional happiness is almost completely based on your on your mental state, right? Now, if somebody's beating you while you're hung upside down and they're beating you with bamboo switches on the ass, you're not going to be happy unless you're a real freaky person, right? I guess there's a few people who will be like, oh, this is great, do some more, right? Most of them will be pretty miserable. So there's a limit to that. But for most people, most of the time, the reason that they're unhappy is because their mental state is off. And if they could change their mental state, and I don't mean with drugs or something, I mean by like just the way they look at the angle of something, they could be a lot happier as a person. So 
I think one of the biggest parts of doing that, and it seems like these people were on their way to this, but maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. So listen up. Finding your tribe. Maybe they weren't. So finding your tribe is like so important. So, and here's what I mean by that. Just because you know a lot of people and interact with a lot of people doesn't mean you found a tribe. Okay. So they are working with lower income people. It sounds like they're saying about food, garden, something like that. I, I really couldn't get it all. So that means they have this large interactive group of people that they care about that probably appreciate them. That does not equal a tribe. Usually in that type of work, you are working way harder to help the person than they are to help themselves. Okay? That's why I don't like doing that kind of work personally, right? That's why I don't like, believe it or not, as different as it sounds, I don't like business consulting. I don't like consulting with people on, like, their marketing plans and their business structure and all because inevitably they don't take it as seriously as you do. They pay your money and they do half of what you say and then they don't get the results that you promised because, well, they didn't do what you told them they needed to do, right? So you've put more into it than they will. They always have an excuse. And I think a lot of times when we're doing a lot of this kind of, you want to call it relief work, a significant, not all, but a significant portion of the people you're helping kind of view it as, okay, well, you're here to, to do stuff for me, right? My, my wife actually worked for a number of years as a social worker for uh, Salvation Army. And she said they would have people come in with such an entitled attitude and saying shit like, oh, I'm a taxpayer. You owe it to me to provide something for me or whatever. She's like, this isn't tax. This is private charity. No one cares if you're a taxpayer here or not. We don't get anything from the government. So there is some of that. So one way or another, whether that's your situation or something else, just because you're surrounded by people all the time doesn't mean they're your tribe. Lots of people work in large offices. You're surrounded by people every day. You talk to people every day. You even get along with them. They're all right. It doesn't make them your tribe. You know, if you're a fisherman, probably people that are in your tribe are people that go fishing with you. doesn't mean if they don't go, they're not in your tribe. Tribes have fishermen and have hunters and have gardeners and have homemakers, et cetera, right? So you can have people that don't, but it likely if you fish, the person that you regularly take fishing with you, is probably in your tribe. If you garden and when you have a big project, the people that come over that want to hang out with you and work in your backyard, those people are in your tribe. The people you do business with on a handshake, okay, and a first name basis, for, and maybe some things that are a little bit in the gray market area, probably in your tribe. The person you will call and have a conversation with when you're installing something in your backyard that's kind of homestead relating with, you know, they're probably in your tribe. If you were deciding, I'm just going to have a bunch of people over to hang out, it ain't going to be family. Right? That's not a family thing unless they're tribal family members, right? But not where we just invite every Tom, Dick, Harry, uncle, and aunt, right? But, like, I'm going to just invite five friends over to hang out for a weekend. They're probably in your tribe. They're the people that you want to be with when you don't have to. And so finding your tribe is key. And I think one of the ways to do this, and this, I've talked about this with community building a lot too. You can't go out trying to create a tribe by saying, I want to create a tribe, unless you're among people who are already of that mindset, right? Or a group, a prepper group, whatever, a homesteader group, anything like that. People immediately like feel like it's a cult, even if it's not, right? 
what brings people together is common interests and ideals. So I think setting up activities and events that attract the like-minded are the way to go there. You know, if you're in a city, one of the things you have access to is things like community centers. And since you have those, you can, for very low cost, draw often for free, right, then you are able to use those facilities and do something like just get on YouTube and find, like, Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture Series, maybe two, three weeks in advance to build it up, get on your next door or whatever, and run marketing for something that's free. We're going to have a watch party. This is cool. This is what you'll learn. Uh, we'll, I'll be leading a discussion about what we learned at the end of it. Bring your kids, you know, bring a bag of chips, whatever, six-pack of soda, whatever it is, and come hang out. Every person that shows up has a common interest, permaculture, right? And don't call it permaculture, right? Because the other common interests are gardening, right? Urban homesteading, suburban homesteading, food production, edible landscaping, call it all those things so that you throw the widest net possible because these are not people that immediately will be in your tribe. This is a networking event to find tribal members, right? So you take that approach. Another thing is, Seek out others that are already doing that. See if there's anything like that going on. Get on your next door group. Ask about things like, is there a master gardener's group around here? I know they do a lot of things that we're not exactly keen on, but they're all people that grow plants. And I guarantee you, you will find people within that organization that are all in on organic permaculture, what have you, right? See if there's any kind of meetup groups that match the ideals that you're interested in. And it doesn't have to be homesteading, Right. Liberty and freedom are common ideals that, that often overlap many other places. So one of the places you'll find it, and I, I don't know where you won't find a meetup group for this, especially in a city, is Bitcoin. Even if you're not that big into Bitcoin, the Bitcoin meetup group that I, and I haven't been in a few months. We need to go again once all this uh, hubbub passes with all this busy time of year. Um, we talk less about Bitcoin than we do just about life. Like, it's just like we are people who are into Bitcoin because we believe that Bitcoin is a freedom asset. And so we get together and talk about all kinds of stuff. And most of the people in that meetup have gardens, believe it or not. Right. Or some level of outdoor enthusiasm or they're gun owners. Like, it's just a place with overlap. So look for the overlapping places as well. And always lead with relationships, not specific agendas. So and what I mean by that is I, I used to train a lot of salespeople and, you know, you're going to go to, you know, technology business council meetings and uh, chamber of commerce meetings and networking events and trade shows and all. And you need to network with people. Right. But the problem with that is people always come at it from like, you know, if you go to a chamber of commerce meeting, kick a table and like five financial advisors come out from underneath it and hand you a business card, say, can manage your money. Right. And underneath the ass end of each one of those financial advisors are two real estate agents trying to sell you or buy you a house. Right. Like they're every, they like leech on. And it's all about the thing that they do. We're effective networkers. They get into an environment like that. First question is, what do you do? What do you how, how are you doing today? What do you do? And I, I don't want to know just professional. Like, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, do you come to these things off and almost dating like language? Right. Because I want to get the relationship established. And it might turn out that that person is not a good fit for what I do. Not right now, anyway. 
But from what they're telling me, this other person that I know from the last time I was here is a good person they should talk to. And you introduce those people. And then that strengthens your relationship with both of them. Now, I'm not saying to do the exact same thing. I'm saying take that as an analogy and understand that when you do an event or go to events or go to places to meet people like this, you start talking to people. Don't worry about, like, do I want to ride out the apocalypse with this person? Like, do the, does this person and I get along? Understand, you're not showing them your full self. Not even close to it, right? Most of us don't show our full selves to anybody except the people that are the absolute closest to us, like a spouse or something, right? But there's this big part of us that will share. But you have to earn our trust before we do it. And tell me you don't find it a little bit creepy when someone doesn't have that. Not even if they expect it from you, right? Right? Not not when they, you know, I know it's one thing when somebody's like, well, what's your name? Like, where were you born? Like, and they're just too much into it. That's one thing. I'm talking about the person that starts sharing, like, their full self with you when you met them, like, five minutes ago. Aren't you like, whoa, dude, let me slow you down a bit. Like, that's just not a natural thing. Humans gain trust across time, and tribes are built on trust. And that's why things like TSPC, right, or Living Free in Tennessee and all these subgroups that have spawned out of what we do here, people that come into them, they go there faster because we know, we know we have, like, unless some weird, because there's been a weirdo or two show up, it's happened. But with those few rare exceptions, you know right away when you're inside that fold that you got something going on, that you got something in common. But then still, you'll find at these events, there's groups that begin to coalesce of people that are more like-minded than others within that. And this is that relationship leading the way. Because it's just as important for me to have a neighbor that I can rely on for a few things, that can rely on me for a few things, is the person that I'm much tighter with. I want all of them in my network. They're all part of my tribe. If I have a tribe of 100 people, it stands the reason that, like, you know, there's going to be half of them that are a lot closer than the other half. And of the half that are close, there's probably going to be, you know, 25, half of those that are really close, there's probably going to be an, another, you know, subdivision of group. There's four or five that are really inner circle. And it's not a negative statement toward anybody else. And some of my inner circle will have different inner circles. And that's all okay. But if we don't lead with the relationship, we fuck up everything just to be blunt. Right? We just mess everything up when we try to force, this is a prepper group, this is a homesteader group, whatever. No. About as tight as I'm going to go on a group is gardening, right? I don't even want to go permaculture on a group. We'll just go gardening. And we let it build itself from there. So think that way as you're building those relationships. Then there's some advantages. Like, I'm telling you that if you live in San Francisco, especially in the city, it is a strategic disadvantage that people can shit on your front steps and you can't do anything about it, all right? That's a disadvantage. I wouldn't want to live there. But there's probably places that are not in San Francisco where that's not the case. I can't know what all of the surrounding area of that place is like. And, and Philadelphia's not San Francisco, to be blunt. Yeah? So there are some advantages. And one is, one of the things I don't like, the number of people. I don't like crowds of people. People think I'm an extrovert. Um, I honestly think that we need a word that's not extrovert or introvert, that's somewhere in between here. Because I hear John Willis and Nicole Sauce constantly claim to actually be introverts. 
And anybody that's an introvert looks at that and goes, no, 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 you're not. Trust me, if you were an introvert, you wouldn't be doing that. And what John and Nicole will accurately say is, but we force ourselves to do this, right? But we force ourselves to do this. So, yeah, I get that. But no, a true introvert wouldn't even force themselves to do it. Then there's extroverts. They can't find people that they don't want to talk to. There's no crowd that's too big. They they walk into a room. There's 100 people in there. And an hour later, they've talked to 75 of them, and they can tell you the names of 50 of them. Right. And some of those will also claim to be introverts, David, and they're full of shit because they know more about the people in that room than I will ever know because I take an interest and they go talk to them all. And then there's there's people like myself, like Nicole and like John. Now, I'm, I think I'm more of a type A personality than both of, of those those folks are, but I am not the extrovert people think I am. As soon as I get into a place with too many people, all I want to do is get out. Yesterday, when we went to Costco, I was a miserable bastard. Sorry to my wife and grandkids. I was a miserable bastard from the time we walked in that door till we got out of there. I hate lots of people everywhere surrounding me, chaos behind. I, I don't like it. I don't like it. But there's a value in it in sheer body count. This is why we have like divisions in high school football, like double A, triple A, five A, right, et cetera, right, four A, because the school that can draw from more people in general will have a better football team than a school that has a very small number of students to draw from. Because let's say if five percent of the people that go to your school are even capable of playing the game football. If you have 100 people, that's only five people. If you have 1,000 people, it's 50. I can make a team out of 50. I cannot make a team out of five. Now, when it comes to building a tribe, it's the same way. Where I live, we're going to get into this in a bit, is what I call the urban-rural fringe, which I stole from David Holcomb, co-founder of Permaculture. And that gives me kind of both accesses. But when it comes to being able to draw people into a group – Sure, if you go to a small town area, if it's a place that's open to outsiders, because that's always the thing, too, more of the people will probably be where you want to be as far as the base level. But when you have six million people to draw from, trust me, there's 60,000 of them that are perfect matches for your tribe. You only need to find a couple dozen. So you get more to draw from for everything, customers, etc. Lots of resources, too. You know, this girl has two acres. She could probably do an urban farm on one and produce more food than they can eat, sell, and give away in that climate. The uh, the rest of it could be devoted to something like making biochar and compost, and they would never have to buy anything. Living in a place like Philadelphia where trees drop leaves every year, people rake them up and stick them in bags and put them out in the curb so you can pick them up, where there's material everywhere to make, and that's just one thing, by the way. You could throw into that like some worm bins and some black soldier fly compost. and so You could build an entire freaking business in that environment with almost every bit of resource that you need to run the business being free or stupid cheap around you or free, but since you want more of it with less work, you pay somebody a small amount and go get it and bring it to you. 
I mean, I met a dude, and you know, this guy's in Tennessee that makes biochar uh, up at in Camden. He found a place they make baseball bats, and when they turn the bats on the lathe, you end up with two little ends of this really great hardwood they make the bats out of, and they cut them two little spindles off the ends. He gets two garbage cans of those full a week, perfectly ready to make biochar out of. How many things like that do you think there are in Philadelphia? And then, again, I'm going down my rabbit hole of ways I see to easily make money and build a, like something in this space. There's a billion things you could do. But we're going we're to go do another show on biochar after the workshop, too. I got some real cool ideas from this dude. I really did. He even gave me a big bag of those little spindles. We're going to burn them at TSP 23. There's just a lot of opportunity there. Lots of resources. Access to services and products, right? So it's not so much about building your business or building your tribe. Just to, if I want something, right? If I want something, I guarantee you within 30 minutes of my house, I can find it or something very close to it. And if I go within an hour of my house, there's nothing I can't get other than, let's say, snow, you know, because it doesn't snow here that much. But a anything from freaking, I don't know, sushi to souvenir shops and everything in between, we got it in the city. And so I live out of the city, but it's there. So I can appreciate, you know, restaurants, shops, stuff like that. It's important to people. If it wasn't important to people, they wouldn't stay in business. Right? We can we can bag on modern lifestyle all we want, but clearly people see value in it or they wouldn't spend their money on it and their time doing it. Uh, next is if you are in business, access to customers is huge. We can sell duck eggs for $10 a dozen, and if my wife wasn't so worried about being nice to everybody, we could raise our price to 12 and no one would blink at it. We can sell every egg that we produce before it comes out of the duck's ass. And that's because there's 6 million people that can drive an hour to an hour and a half and get to our gate and pick the eggs up. You can do exactly the way we do things. You can do it exactly the way we were doing it when we were doing it full-time as a true commercial operation, which we were doing a few years ago and back, selling to restaurants and everything. But if you do it in a place like, you know, Jabitville, Tennessee, you're not going to sell eggs for $12 a dozen. I don't care if they're, you know, non-GMO, non-soy duck eggs that are fed, you know, chamomile infused sprouts, and you have a cute little channel called the Duck Chronicles channel. You're not going to do it. You're going to have to find a way to have a shippable product to make money. You're going to sell hatching eggs or something if you're in that business. But you are not going to sell consistently, you know, 40 dozen eggs a week at 10 to $12 a dozen in Jibbitville, Tennessee. But just outside of Nashville, you might. Or in Nashville, you might. You just might not be able to have the ducks. And the ducks are just one example. All I'm saying is anything you're selling, when you are geographically adjacent to more people, you have more prospective customers for local business and some of the best business in the world, you know, the cash, hand-to-hand, -hand, me, you, and the fence post business. A lot of this stuff, that's the way you want to be. Um, a little note on that. I want you to think about a lot of businesses that you would run in these suburban areas this way. You think of it like you're a drug dealer. 
right? And I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying think about how do drug dealers stay out of jail? Think about, especially before, you know, cannabis is legal in more than half the country now and all. I bet most of y'all that are my age, you knew somebody, at least somebody that knew somebody back in high school or college that grew pot in a closet or something like that and sold pot all the time. You smoked the pot or your friends because you didn't ever inhale or whatever. You didn't, but you knew somebody who knew somebody that did. Hey, if you wanted pot, you went and got pot. Yeah. And somehow, this dude never went to jail. Not even once. Maybe even a cop or two knew he did it. Maybe even a cop or two, you know, bought a little bit for themselves. What is the rule? Well, that's another rule on drugs, but I don't think it applies here. Loco says don't get high on your own supply. No. You don't sell to people you don't know. And that means if it's anything that has a risk of being shut down, you don't blatantly publicly market it as a local available sale. If you can ship it, you market that on the Internet. But you build a network and you sell to people. And this can actually make you more desirable. Well, can you get some of Jack's compost? I don't know. He doesn't sell it to anybody. But I know him pretty good. I'll vouch for you. Maybe, maybe, maybe he has room on his customer list. Don't think that's not how the duck eggs don't work. Now we don't have to hide it, but we're like, oh, like I've even literally had some calls. Like, I really need some duck eggs. We don't have any for you right now. No, I heard that your stuff's really good, and I got family coming in for the holidays, and like, I'm sorry, we don't have any. Right? No is the most powerful word in sales and marketing. But following a little bit of that, you sell to people you know and referrals to people you know. And unlike the drugs where it's actually illegal, all you're really worried about Karen's and Kyle's complaining that you're you're making too much noise or doing something they don't like you doing because it must be nice to have them, and they think you're rich. Here's another way to look at it. My dad was a bootleg coal miner, okay, of many other things that he did. He was a bootleg coal miner. Bootleg means you're stealing it, just to be blunt, right? And, and no matter how much the old bootlegger culture claimed it wasn't like stealing because you had to work for it, it was still stealing. You go on somebody else's land, you take something off that land that ain't yours, and you sell it for a profit, you're stealing. So my dad was a professional thief, okay? He stole coal mostly from the Charlie Martin Company, which was a subsidiary of the Reading Company. Dug coal out of the ground. I mean, old school mine, timbers, pick, shovel, dynamite, the whole thing, right? And he hauled this shit to the breaker with a Ford F-250 pickup truck. And he could carry about two ton. That's about how much coal, anthracite hard coal, would fit in the back of that truck to the breaker. And as a kid, you know, I'm talking teenager now, I'm looking at this going, Dad, why don't you uh, get yourself like a little five-ton dump or something like that, and that way you can pull up to the breaker, and once they weigh it, you just dump it, and you don't have to because they didn't take it off the truck for him. I'm sure they might have pushed a bit with an excavator, but in the end, he had to get up there and shovel shovel it on and shovel it off, right? And uh, he said, as long as I'm just hauling this coal up and down this mountain with a busted-ass old pickup truck, they think I'm some – and he's talking about the people that live in the area and see him coming and going. They just think I'm some old jaboni getting coal for his furnace or something. As soon as they think I'm money, I'm making money on it, they'll call it. They'll call the authorities on me. They'll call the cops. 
And eventually, when he got shut down the second time, it was the Department of Natural Resources, DNR, came in and shut him down. It was a complaint call. It's a complaint-driven system. So think about how what you're doing looks to those around you if it's at all at risk and follow the drug dealer rules. And Bogdan, let's see, Bogdan D. Bukvinia, thank you for the $50 super chat, man. That's really awesome. I really appreciate that. Anyway, move yeah, must be nice. Exactly. Faith K says, must be nice. And she did a little bit of the, the shrieking language with the must in there with the small s. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Those people are the ones who make those calls. So you don't need to be putting anything in their face is what I'm getting at. Next, um, job opportunities. You know, a lot of us are wanting to have something of our own. But maybe we have a spouse wants a job. Well, you're going to get a better job near Nashville, Tennessee, or Dallas-Fort Worth, or Atlanta, Georgia. You're going to have more choices in jobs anyway for that, that spouse then you probably will in Jibitville, Tennessee, or Jibitville, Kentucky, or Jibitville, Oklahoma, or Texas, or whatever. So there's more of that. And then a lot of us don't really want to have our own business. So sometimes it's people want a homestead, but they also want a job. Well, it's just more opportunities for that. And I, I can't deny that. It's not that there's not some really good jobs in some rural areas, because there are. But then the other thing that happens is redundancy, right? I always talk about redundancy and resiliency. So let's say I find a good job in Northampton, Pennsylvania, a place I really lived, because I'm able to travel from there because they're a regional VP, and as long as you can go to all your market, they don't really care where you live. But then let's say what really happened, you lose that job. Well, all of a sudden, what, what job is there that pays $200,000 a year in Northampton, there isn't one. You have to find one like the one you lost. Well, if you're not doing a traveling job, if you're working for a place you go to every day and you lose that job and that rural community, there may not be anything like it else there, where if you're in an urban-ish environment, you may have more opportunity. So this is not just, if you're tuning in late today or something or in the middle of this, this is not me changing course and saying why you should go live in the city. This is me acknowledging that there are some advantages to choices that other people make that I'm not particularly uh, fond of making for myself. And But yet I'm not completely an absolutist. I don't live in the middle of nowhere. Now, I will say being a grandfather and a husband has something to do with that. But we've always kind of lived in the urban rural fringe as best we could based on our budget. right? Like even Arkansas, we only live 15 minutes from downtown Hot Springs. That's a hell of a lot less of an urban environment than Fort Worth. But we still lived somewhere there. Mining fiat in the city, Mike says, TN Permaculture. And he's right. And that's a good way to put it. There's more opportunity to mine fiat in the city than there is in the country, unless you get some sort of remote work or something like that. Um, less need to commute. I, I have to always remind me, myself of this one because this is not true in Dallas-Fort Worth. It's a commute everywhere. This is not a walking, biking-friendly environment. It's not just because it's a 1,000 degrees in the summertime. It's beautiful in the winter and the spring. I mean, sorry, the, the fall and the spring and most of the winter. It's still – because it's just distance. Everything's far apart. But there's, like, parts of, like, Philly and stuff like that. Like, I wouldn't live without a car, but you could. You could. 
definitely. Or you could have a vehicle that doesn't go anywhere very frequently. <clears throat> so with the right city town environment, there's much more of a walking biking culture. And that can be, re- I mean, I'm not opposed to it. It just doesn't work here. Right. And on that. Um, then you have access to technology infrastructure. This is becoming less true. The more, let's say, Elon does, Elon does with what is it, SpaceX or whatever, um, satellite internet. Like the more he does with that, the less that this is true. But when we moved back here from Arkansas, one of the things that confined our search area a great deal was, without good internet, I can't do my job. I can't. When we lit Starlink, that's what it is. Yeah. So without good internet, I can't do my job. In Arkansas, even though we were that close to town, I couldn't get DSL cable, any of that. So we actually rented an office. Now, it was so inexpensive for us to live there that adding the offices of business expense made sense. When we moved here and took on a more normal mortgage cost, it didn't anymore. So we had to find something that combined it together. So I think this is less true, but there's more technology generally available in larger population areas. Um Community resources, like I mentioned earlier, parks, community centers, et cetera. All of those things are advantages. Now, you pay for them. They're not free. You pay taxes whether you use them or not, so you might as well not use them. But I think you would find, for instance, I have a really great shop, full AV, big screen television, drop-down screen, AV speakers, surround sound. We set up and do classes. It would be really easy if I wanted to do this for me to say we're doing a – a viewing of, again, I think one of the best ones to start off with, Jeff Lawton's Urban, per- Urban Permaculture DVD. I bet you if I got in touch with Azel and in like their community center, their library, something like that, and I did the same event, marketed the same way on next door, and it was going to be there versus my home, I would get more people to come. And the reason is people tend to... Um, feel more comfortable meeting people for the first time in a public place. And they also know that it will feel less obvious if they leave, if they decide it's not for them. So I'm acutely aware of this in a totally different scenario. When I go to an event, like a workshop event, a seminar series, something like that, I am very careful when I choose to listen to someone speak I've never heard him speak before because for every, you know, X number of good speakers, there's X, the Y number of bad ones. They're just boring. They're like watching paint dry. Like, oh, my God, how did you get in here? Why did they let you speak? And if I sit in the front, since most of the people at this know who I am, if I get up and walk out, they notice it. And I don't want to do that to the person, even if I don't want to listen to them. And I might just have to get up and walk out. So I tend to, like, sit places where I can kind of inconspicuously leave and whether it actually rings or not, I always kind of pick up my phone and look at it and do this. Like, oh, he had to take a call or something like that, right? Um, so that's a thing. And what I'm saying is when you are like, do I want to go to Joe Blow's house for this thing with a bunch of people I don't know at Joe Blow's house who I don't know? Or am I more comfortable going to the Azel Community Center where if it doesn't work out, I can just kind of drift away and no one will really care? Which one's more comfortable? So you can use those resources, maybe because you don't have any, but also because they make people feel more comfortable. And then it's easier to find help. And I'm talking help you pay for. 
whether you're a business and you need to hire employees part-time or full-time, uh, whether you need just general labor work, like I need somebody to do something for me, or contractors. And, I mean, a contractor can be somebody who remodels your kitchen, but a contractor can be that hybrid between an employee and someone you don't know, right? Like someone that routinely does work in your business for you, but they're not an employee, it is so much easier to find all those things when you have more people to draw from, just like that high school team that has a better football team just because, you know, there's there's 900 people in their senior class and 890 people in their junior year class. So their varsity football team has a very broad group of young boys to draw from. So they're going to be better than the, you know, there's actually teams that play like, I think they play like eight-man football or something like that. Like they reduce the total number of bodies because they do not have enough people to field a full team, right? So you're obviously going to get better results when you have more to pull from if you're able to pull some of the best of what you can get. You have more options in your choices there. And then I want to talk a little bit, though, just a little bit today, like in spite of everything I said, why I prefer to be more out in the country even if it's like I am where, yeah, Fort Worth, it, just to make this really clear, because I don't think people understand this. If I had a four-story house, not a two-story, but a four-story house, and I went up on my roof and I looked that way, if you're watching this screen, I could see the buildings in downtown Fort Worth from right here, from a four-story building. No problem. No, Well, not today because it's all socked in, but normal, clear, sunny day, no problem. Right. So that's how close I am. But yet I would say everything I'm about to tell you is true about where I live. And this is why I like urban rural French. Um, number one, less restrictions. You know what I was talking about, like, you know, if you were doing the biochar thing, you know, maybe you only burn a couple days a week and you don't put a sign up and you do your stuff kind of back door and friends and friends and then you do other things where you ship product and whatever and you keep it kind of on the down low. I don't have to do any of that here. I can put up a billboard in my front yard. Jack's biochar, Jack's chickens, Jack's quail and onions, whatever I want it to be. No, it doesn't matter if my neighbor is the biggest, if she's the mother Karen of Karens, the Karen mothership, she can call anybody she wants. She can bitch to anybody want. She can do anything she wants to do. She can make her own side and say, this guy sucks, and I'll just go, okay, I suck. Come buy my biochar, right? There's nothing you can do, bitch. I love that. And I literally live as close as I am to the city where there are no restrictions. And you will not find that in anything approaching a real urban, suburban, suburb type situation. You will never have that much freedom. And I will tell you... I always liked the idea of it until I truly experienced it. I didn't understand how freeing it was. It is incredibly liberating, and I don't know that I could ever go back. You know, when you call the sheriff's department and say, hey, I just want to be clear on what no restrictions means, and the person on the other end of the phone says, as long as you ain't cooking meth in your backyard, you'll probably be okay, that feels pretty good. We don't even have building codes. I mean, we literally have, like, I've had contractors who work at my property, like, well, technically for code, we should move this vent over one foot. Uh, just hold on. Do we need to? Well, for code, no, no, stop. From safety, say, like, will anything bad happen if we don't do it? Well, no, but code, okay, stop. I'm out in the county. And the contractor goes, oh, okay, then I'm not doing it. Right? But I want to be sure. Like, 
it, 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 crazy as it is to people in government, right? People tend not to do things with their homes that are dangerous for them. They tend to think uh, before they make a decision like that, especially when there's not a lot of money involved, you know, just like, I don't even, but that freedom is huge. Next, there are fewer complainers. There's less Karens. There's just less Karens. Now, I'll tell you why. It isn't that there really are a lower percentage of Karens. I think the Karen percentage, much like if you know from old school TSP, I have what's called the scumbag theory, which is about 10% of people are total scumbags. And the only thing that keeps them from lying, cheating, raping, stealing, burning shit up, all of it is fear of what will happen to them if they do it. If when you move, then that's why you remove that fear and you have rights because that 10% of people goes ape shit. And by the way, there's about another 10% of go along scumbags. In general, they're not scumbags, but when they witness enough scumbaggery, mom mentality takes over and they participate at least passively. Yeah. Well, there's also, I would call it the Karen theory. And I would say about 5% of society, maybe more, but at least 5% of society are Karens. So if I live in a place with 10 million people, that's a lot of Karens. If I live in a place with 10,000 Karen, uh, people, that's a lot of Karens, but a lot less with the same percentage. And if I live somewhere with a couple hundred people, that's very few Karens. It's still the same percentage. My overall likelihood that any individual that I come into contact with is going to be a Karen is the same. But there's two kinds of Karens. There's Karens with power and Karens without power. They can be the same person. Their geography or the situation will change whether they have power or not. A Karen with power is a Karen that can call the police or a building inspector or somebody from the department of making you sad and make something happen that you don't want to happen. That's a Karen with power. A Karen with no power can be like if my name, they're not, but if my neighbors across the street or over the fence were Karens and they call the sheriff's department right now, so Jack Spirico has a whole bunch of ducks. They run around quacking. He's got a whole bunch of roosters that are crowing in the trees. He's got all this stuff going on and it bothers me. The sheriff's going to tell him, piss off, right? So the fact that they don't have power alone makes things better. But when they know they don't have power, they do the one thing that we want all Karens to do, STFU, right? STFU, Karen, we don't need to hear it from you because they know they're not going to get anywhere with it. They just keep their yap shut, at least as far as you're, they might bitch to their Karen friend, but they don't actually become a problem. So I have not yet encountered a Karen in my general vicinity but by just looking at comments on next door, I can tell you they're here. They just don't cause any trouble because they can't. Karens are inherently useless individuals, but when you give them the power of bureaucracy and a phone, they start making trouble for people. Yeah. Next is, and I can't tell you how big a deal this is to me, it's quiet. It's quiet. When I vacation or something and I have to stay at a hotel that's near like a highway or something, I don't sleep well. Just the constant road noise alone, even if it's not that bad. When I'm somewhere and there's a lot of machinery going on or whatever, it's like after a certain amount of time, I want to just like shove my elbows in my ears or something. Like I just want it to. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to put it on the screen. 
you'll have to tune in and find this timestamp to uh, figure it out. One minute, one hour, three minutes, twenty-one seconds on the uh, on the video timestamp. You'll find it. Um, I'm I, I'm lost for a second. Yeah, it's quiet, right? It's quiet. Um, I don't like noise, and it's amazing how much more peaceful things are here versus just five miles away. That's that's a big deal to me. It may not be as big a deal to you, but it's also like one of the reasons I brought up the good things about living out of the city is can you find something as close to that as possible, as close to the city as possible if you don't want to leave? Because, again, the way I choose to live is what I suggest and what I recommend, because if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't do it. You know, when somebody asks me to recommend a product, the first thing I, if I use the product, I recommend the one I use, because why would I recommend something I don't use just so I could sell it? So it's what I recommend because I think it's probably the best way for the most people. I am not making that decision for you any more than I tell you which car to drive or what diet to follow. I'll just advise you on what's worked best for me and what I really you know, believe is best. Now, the Urban Roll Fringe, there's two things about it that I absolutely love. And it's why, as much as I say get out, I also kind of always push Urban Roll Fringe. And again, when I use somebody's term and I know the source, I always try to give them credit. The first place I heard the term from, and I believe he coined it, is David Holdrum, who was along with Bill Mollison, co-founder of the permaculture movement. But one is the freedom of the country and the amenities of the city. If I want to go get great sushi, and probably not next week, the week after this workshop's over, we're going to take my grandson by himself, no, no sister to deal with. We're trying to broaden his world. We're going to take him. Fantastic sushi. Yeah, I... Uh, I got to say, I ain't never had no sushi in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. I don't know I would trust it if there was there. I really don't know that I would. I'm not sure how much sushi you can get yourself in Camden, Tennessee, and I'm not sure how much I would trust it. There's certain things. You know, I'm a redneck hippie duck farmer. I dress in T-shirts and tactical pants or jeans or shorts all the time. Uh, I wear a beard. You know, I just cut my hair short so I don't have to do anything with it. Like, I am redneck through and through on some levels and, like, productive modern hippie through and through on some other levels, right? I still have a taste for some refinement at times, right? I know how to properly taste the wine at the head of the table in a very fancy place. I like the ability to do something like that once in a while. I like to take a special guest, you know, once a year or so, Pick somebody special coming in, doesn't know, and take them to Lonesome Dove downtown. I'm going to drop 500 bucks on a plate, not a plate, 500 bucks on a table for a night like that. That's why it only happens maybe once a year. But I like the fact that I can. I can do that with Urban Rural Fringe, and I don't have to give up all the things I love about being in the country. Uh, and access to major markets without having to live in them. The fact that I can have customers suppliers, contractors out of this huge pool, right? This huge pool of people and not have to live next door. I know that sounds elitist, but I love it. And you, it is a little bit elite living in the urban rural fringe because it has some challenges. And one is property tends to be more expensive, especially in states like Texas with this kind of spread out, everybody commutes everywhere mentality. If you look, the most expensive property 
in this area are right downtown, downtown Fort Worth, downtown Dallas. I mean, you, there are luxury one-bedroom apartments in downtown, right in the urban center of Fort Worth that are $2,500 a month. Now, if you live in New York City, you're like, that's cheap. It ain't here. Okay, it's not cheap here. And they're more expensive downtown Dallas. And then as you move out to the, the Beltway suburbs, this is your most affordable housing relative to quality, meaning a three-bedroom, two-bath house in a nice neighborhood is going to sell for less in the Beltway suburbs than it is in downtown property. It's going to be more expensive the closer you get to downtown. It will go down in price, and then a funny thing happens. As soon as you move into that urban rural fringe where you're not in the suburbs anymore, you've gotten outside the belt of the beltway. There are no more giant neighborhoods. Houses are spread out, but you can still see from a high enough building downtown. That is the most expensive property relative to its quality, the age of the house, shape of the house, amount of land you can buy. And until you get foreign and you keep going, it stays the same. You go out another 20 miles, it's, it's relatively the same cost for the same like type property until you get to the point where people are like, man, I ain't driving that every day. And you take out the buyers who are going to commute to work every day until you hit that place. That price stays at a premium. And once you get on the other side of it, it begins to drop back down and you are out of the urban rural fringe by definition at that point. Right. So there is a and this is more true now. It doesn't mean there's not deals and there are always deals. This place was structurally sound, ton of infrastructure, showed like garbage and needed a ton of work when we moved in. So I bought this place, 2,500 square foot, three acres fenced with a one acre to two acre cross fence. So I've got a two acre segment and a one acre segment outbuilding a 12 by 16 outbuilding a 1,600-square-foot shop, all-steel, insulated metal building, a concrete floor, a second 800-square-foot one just like it, all in $205,000 10 years ago. Now, people will say, Jack, it's so much more expensive now. And anybody that you told in, in, in 2013 that you were going to go out and buy what I bought for what I paid for it would have told you you were smoking crack and it couldn't be done. It took us eight months to find this property and a month and a half of negotiations with sellers who didn't understand why they couldn't get what they were asking for to get it done and an extra $5,000 out of pocket to get it done. But we did it. And there are always ways to get it done. You just have to be patient. And the more optimum what you're looking for is, the more you have to be patient if you don't want to overpay. So there are always deals if you work hard enough, but they're harder to find here. There's less property. When you're in the when you're in the urban zone, there's tons of property because it's high density, right? As you get out into the urban rural fringe, there's less density, so less property. When you get past it, you just have unlimited land. And the further away you go, the less desirable anybody has to commute is, so the lower the price because there's more to pick from. It's a supply-demand issue only. Um, and then there's another thing you have to worry about. And I worry about it a little bit, at least. As long as you're in the fringe, you're in the potential shadow of urban sprawl. And 
this is probably something I'm more sensitive than a lot of people are in other parts of the country because the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex has always been a growing metro mess. And it just keeps growing. There's parts of Dallas-Fort Worth now that are considered part of the Metroplex that are like up Central Expressway or whatever. They are closer to Oklahoma than they are downtown Dallas. I ain't kidding. You just keep heading north on 75. You'll get to Oklahoma before you get to downtown. But it's if you ask somebody where they live, they'll say, oh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Where? Allen? Allen isn't Dallas. Yeah, it is. It's part of the whole combobulation. And this makes urban rural fringe not only a little bit at risk of being swallowed up and annexed, right? The other thing it does is it makes it harder to find. So if you live near Philadelphia, Philadelphia ain't that big, right? It really isn't. I mean, there's a lot of people there. I'm just saying geographically, it's not that broad spread out. And then you have, you know, like King of Prussia and some places that are part of like the suburbs of Philly. But it doesn't take much to get out to the point where you could go into town, but you don't have to. Dallas-Fort Worth, the big dick, and if you don't know what I mean by calling it the big dick, go look up, go to go to Google, put in Dallas-Fort Worth map, and click on images. And once you see it, you will never unsee it. When you take that Dallas-Fort Worth giant penis and balls, Dallas being the ball sack, Mid-Cities being the shaft, and Fort Worth being the head of the penis, go look it up if you don't believe me. It really, you, Again, you cannot unsee it. Um, once you see that, you, then think about how big the area is just outside of it. Just outside of it. And I'm actually going to look this up because I know some of y'all doubt me. Fort Worth penis. <laughs> Let's see. I'm on default to Brave Search, but let's see. No, we need to go to. There it is. All right, here we go. Thanks for bearing with me. There you go. That's Dallas Fort Worth. It's a giant penis. And so if you start looking at that red line that goes all the way around there, there are places for people to work anywhere inside those red lines and plenty just outside of those red lines. So the area outside the city that people are willing to commute from is massive compared to a lot of other cities. And so I always try to temper uh, some of my comments. Please always understand when I'm making comments about land and property and all, even when I really try very hard uh, not to let my personal bias infuse that it always can at times. So if nothing else, you got to laugh, laugh out of that. In the end though, where you live is far less important than how you live, who you surround yourself with, and your mindset. I can tell you there's absolutely broke-ass, miserable, enslaved people living all over rural Appalachia, all over the place. Some of them I went to school with, all right? And, and they are more enslaved than a homesteader living in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. There, there's no doubt about that. They have less going on in their lives. They have less of a tribe. Uh, they produce less of their own food. There's tons of that everywhere. The way you think and the way you structure and design your life is what's mo most important. So I'm not going to stop saying, get out, get out, get out. 
of these cities and their beltway suburbs, I'm, especially your flashpoint cities. And with all due respect to the lady that I did this show inspired by, yes, Philadelphia is a flashpoint city. But I want to be clear about who I'm really giving that message to. If you want out at any time, start working on it yesterday and make it happen as quickly as you can. The cost, the expense, and the logistics of doing it are only going to get harder going forward. Yeah? If you don't want to, then don't worry about my opinion. Take everything else. Jeet Kune Do that shit. Take everything else that I teach and use it and apply it to design your life the way you want to. I have never said that it's Shakespeare goes way or the highway about anything that I teach. And the last place that I would go hammer on somebody that way and want to make somebody feel upset about their choice for their life or their family is about where you live. You couldn't pay me to live in downtown Philadelphia. I'm telling you, there is no, it, it doesn't exist or the amount of money is so insane and it has to come with it. Like if somebody said, well, you go live and do your show from an office in Philadelphia for a year for $50 million. Next day, you're going to hear, well, folks, this is Jack Smirker coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, I'll do that. But if it was permanent, no. I wouldn't even do it for $50 million. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. I'm not living like that for the rest of my life. And I'll tell you the other thing. This is why I have so much passion and impetus with get out, get out, get out. The older I get, the more that's true. You offered me that deal for 10 years in Philadelphia. Right now, my wife's going to be miserable. My grandkids won't want to come. They'll either have to or not. My kid's not going to want to come. Like, I have so many things in my life, and I'm old. No. A year, I'll give you. 10 years, no. When I was 25 years old, you could have offered me $10 million for 10 years to do something like that, and I would have been there like that. I wasn't married yet, didn't have kids in my life. It's a different situation. And this is the thing. The older you get, the older you get, the more difficult these types of things become. So if you are young and you keep thinking to yourself, someday, 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 I'll tell you how you make that okay. I'll tell you how you make that work. Then there should be something you're doing that is measurable and can be judged as being success or failure on a weekly, monthly, and annual basis for getting there. A certain amount of money you're spent, you're saving, a skill set you're developing, and it's more than one of those things, right? You need a plan. I want to be in a place like X in Y number of years. That is going to require X number of dollars. To save up X number of dollars, I need to save Y number of dollars per week. And that means at the end of that week, you can say, what went into the Freedom Fund? Wah, wah, you lost. I need to catch up. I got ahead. Good. I'm not going to back off next week. I'll go back to my normal number monthly and however you want to judge it. But you need to be judging it. Because as a guy with a lot more gray hair now than when I started this podcast 15 years ago, 15 years puts a lot of gray on a man once he's already in his 30s. I can tell you that the time slips quicker than you think that it will. And one day becomes never very, very quickly in our lives. There's an old saying, and it's the days are long, but the years are short. 
And it's often given as advice to parents. You have that five-year-old screaming and crying and the two-year-old still shitting its pants. And you're like, I just can't wait till they grow up. Days are long, but the years are short. And it, it, that two-year-old will be moving a tassel from one side of a hat to another and going on with their life and walking out of yours to a large degree. I mean, they'll always be the kid. You always love them. But even if they live down the road, once they go, they trust me, and you need them to, and they need to. They need to go build that life of their own. It's dramatic how quick that happens. That same time frame, though, you get tunnel vision on raising a family, and sometimes you lose sight of your own dreams, and you fall for the American Express financial advisor commercial, and you think you and your significant other will be walking down a beach and say, want Neo and Rich when you're 70. When for all you know, you'll be in a bed laying there dying or you'll already be in a hole in the ground. I don't need to bring you down or nothing, but it's true. So if you don't want to be where you are, wherever it is, get out, get out, get out, get the hell out and get out as quickly and exponentially, expediently as you can. And have a plan and judge your plan with metrics because 25 becomes 35 like that. But you know what's faster? Those of you that are my age and older, you tell these people in a live stream right now that I am telling them the truth. The time it takes to go from 25 to 35 is quicker than you expect. But 35 to 45 makes it like a joke. You're like, wait, how, what? Anybody here ever have a dream like, especially if you're like 50 or older, 45 or older, somewhere in that range, you have a dream. And in that dream, you're in your 20s. And you have that moment where you wake up and you can have full recall of the dream. And you also know that it's now. And you think to yourself, holy shit, I'm 51 years old. How the hell did this ever happen? It's like that. Where you live goes from being a place to an anchor across time. If you want to be somewhere else, then make it happen. If you want to be where you are, you do not need to justify it to Jack Spirico, John Willis, Nicole Sauce, or any some bitch with a YouTube channel or a podcast. You just need to make it the best life that you can for yourself. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I do have a few items starred. We'll see what they are right now before we give you our item of the day. Uh, Marco says, what is your shirt today? It says, be the reason someone stops believing in government with the Gatson flag chopped up snake from the revolution, right? Uh, Transylvania Farmer says, my husband doesn't want to move. We have a house in 80 acres in Missouri Ozarks bought three years ago, and he chooses to live in a rental in Sacramento. Some of us are stuck because of our SO, significant other, I believe they mean. I'm sorry to hear that. That's I can't fix personal problems like that. Um, that is odd to me that you own the property, but make some money on it. I would at least say and try to find something that makes both of you happy. I, I really don't know how to fix that. Um, a lot of people just like living in cities. They do. And if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be cities. The only reason there are cities is there's lots of people, which means a significant portion of them want to be there, even if a lot of them said they don't. <coughs> Bogdan de Bukavia, Fina, I can't pronounce your name, dude. That was the guy who gave me the $50 super chat. 
that auto stars. If you super chat me at auto stars, just so you know, I just wanted to say thank you again. Gma Merkel says, I wanted this place since I saw it when I was 15. Kept my eye on the prize. Now I own it. Good for you. Good for you. And I think there's a, you know, I just want to point out to people that you get better at things and you achieve things that you work at. I know that seems pretty obvious, but, you know, look at all these kids out there today that can score a million or a billion or a zillion or whatever it is points on a, a given thing or something like that. They get so good at a video game. What if that young person just thought about, I want to be really good at investing and saving my money and making the most out of my financial assets and put that time into that. So whether it's a business owning land, whatever it is, what you work at the most, you'll have the most success with. Builder of castles, question, comment. In the near future, electricity will be created anywhere. Internet will be everywhere on the planet. How does that change your decision tree of land choosing? So first of all, I think the idea that electricity will be everywhere is a pipe dream that you cannot count on. Okay? I do. I think that electricity will become more and more available if we stop our stupid-ass war on fossil fuels. And if you really want to make power available everywhere, we need to build next-generation, very safe, very effective, very efficient nuclear power plants, which we seem to have no plan to do. So I'm not even factoring electrical availability. Um, if I really want to live somewhere and there's no grid power, then I can almost in inevitably put in solar off-grid stuff and the cost differential will actually benefit me. So Sean Mills, back when Steve Harris used to be around, had this debate going with Steve, and Steve said, solar will never pay it for itself, and Sean's like, I can get solar to pay for itself on day one. And they had this little tiff going, and eventually Sean came out with it, and Sean was like, well, if I buy a piece of property and it's $30,000, and it would have cost me $100,000 if it was the same property on grid, and I put a $40,000 solar system in, and now it's a $60,000 property versus a $100,000 property. I'm $40,000 into profit on day one. And Stephen Harris went, ram, 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 ram. Okay, you're right. Yeah, so there's that way around it, but I'm not really factoring that because it's already here from that side. Technology. It's going to be... The Internet access is going to be the last thing that I look for, but it's going to be one of the first things that I need. So I'm going to look for the same property. There's just more for me to look at in that situation. I'm probably not going anywhere at this point. We're probably, Dorothy and I have talked about it. There's times we look at each other and go, why do we live here? And we do look at places like Tennessee, which also has a lot of the same political climate of Texas and no, no state income tax and stuff like that because um, <clears throat> the summers are just brutal. I just get so tired of the summers. And the other side of it, though, is we love the place, you know, and we, we love our family. And, and there is a thing to family roots. Um, but I think it would just give me more more options if I were looking is all that would do. Uh, I will put it this way. There are two properties I can think of right now off the top of my head that in many ways were better places to have bought than this one. And I would have bought either one of them 10 years ago. Instead of this place, I would have never even found it because I would have kept looking if I'd have been able to get good Internet at them. One was a really cool kind of log cabin thing. It was on 10 acres. The soil was a hell of a lot better. And it, it was it was adjacent to a huge farm. that was just basically growing hay. 
and the guy's never there. It's like he just all it was is a hay operation. And I could have stood in the backyard and shot doves to my heart's content. I couldn't get internet there. I would have bought that. That was down near Corsicana. It would have been just as close to Dorothy's dad's at the time, so it would have worked. And there was another place out toward where my buddy Michael and his wife Teresa live out toward Terrell that had, it was like seven and a half acres, big barn. Everything about it was better than here, except I couldn't get good internet there. And so though, that's just an example of I would have had more things to choose from. That's it. Um, Gmail Merkel, that's all caps. I don't think it was really a question. So I'm pretty sure my Krabby Patty hasn't rented anything in a long time. Not sure what that's about. TN Permaculture said, what's the difference between $100 sushi and $500 sushi restaurants? I would have to go to a $500 sushi restaurant to know if I was comparing it to a $100 sushi restaurant. Sushi is generally a function of how many people are there and how much you buy and how long you're there to how much you spend. When I said $500 at Lonesome Dove, I wasn't talking about sushi. I'm talking about things like elk, tenderloin, and some of the best dry-aged steaks you can get and all. Um, sushi Axum is the place that we go to here. Uh, there's another place called Piranha Sushi. They're, they're very good places, but, you know, they're not... They're not really super expensive. I just wouldn't go to discount sushi. Okay? Like, there's a certain amount that you need to pay for high-quality fresh fish that you're willing to eat raw. Yeah, so those are kind of those are kind of disjointed, but I figured I'd answer it. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope seeing a different viewpoint into this subject that we've talked about a lot uh, is helpful. I know there are many of you that you're trying to make the most out of what you have. Do it. Don't be, don't ever apologize for it. I'm always shocked when I meet somebody and you say, well, where do you live? And they kind of like, you know, do like the thing when you're asking a girl out for the first time and you're kind of kicking the dirt behind you and looking down. Well, we still live in Atlanta right now, but like, don't apologize for that shit. You know, I came up in places like Louisville, Texas. That's a prime suburb of Dallas. So I, when I was young, I lived a hell of a lot more in the city, had apartments, stuff like that, because it's what I could do at the time. No gas station sushi, K-Bonk. I don't trust gas station sushi. I don't even trust, like, supermarket sushi. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> Jim says it's great if you're constipated. Anyway, guys, I need to wrap up. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Hey, and whether you are rural or urban, the item of the day today is on sale again. This has become the, well, it's the number two selling item on TSPAS this year based on total units. And before the end of the year, if they keep putting it on sale, it may bypass the number one item. These are these galvanized metal raised garden beds. They look like a four foot by two foot deep by eight foot long oval stock tank, which is basically what they are without a bottom. And they come in panels, so you bolt them together. That way, they can actually afford to ship them to your house. I've sold well over 200 of these now, and I have had no complaints at all about them. None. Zero. Zilch. No complaints. And I think it's more like 300 of them. I, I checked the numbers. It was only through September, and I first brought it to you in August. But I've sold a butt-ton of these, and no one's complained about them. They're on sale for 125 bucks today. Now, think about what you're getting here. A raised garden bed that's four foot wide by eight foot long, standard dimensions, but two foot deep. Put it in a level spot, level it out a little bit if you need to, and fill it up and plant it 
and you're good to go. What do you think it would cost to build a two foot deep, four foot by eight foot bed in pressure treated lumber right now? Do you think you could do that for 125 bucks using like two by eights or something? The answer is no. Now, raised beds aren't right everywhere, but they're right in a lot of places. So wherever you are, if you want to put raised beds in, I'll put it this way. I've got all the raised beds I need. I got beds not planted right now. I got to figure out how to fix some beds, make sure they get planted next year. Okay? So I don't need any. So I ain't bought any. This is one of the very few items on T-SPAS I haven't purchased. As many as I've sold, all the feedback I got, totally comfortable doing it. But the only reason I'm not buying them is I don't have a place for them and I don't need them right now. If I hadn't built all the stuff I've built, I would went with these every stinking time because I'll die before that thing rusts apart. And that's saying something. That is really saying something. That that'll Probably I'll be dead before that thing doesn't work anymore. At least I'll be older than crap and probably won't want to garden anymore. And as a person who spent a lot of my life gardening in ground beds, raised beds, raised up beds, let me tell you something about two foot. Unless you're like six foot nine or like one foot tall, two foot is the height. You don't have to really bend over. You can do everything. A bed this height, your your entire gardening equipment is probably one of those little sickles that I recommend, a folding serrated sickle or a little hand hoe and a trowel. You don't need anything else. They're wonderful height to work with. So at this price, definitely consider uh, making this work. All right. So somebody real quick here before we go. Silvio Dante, New Jersey said, you guys expecting zombies? Doomsday fantasy scenario? Question mark. No. If you thought that's what you were getting when you came here, stick around, dig deeper. You might find out that we got some regular people here that just understand that things can and do go wrong. This is not a Doomsday Prepper channel. This is not a Doomsday Prepper show. This is a very optimistic group of people who understand that lifestyle design without resiliency and redundancy built into it is shitty design. Things can and do go wrong in life, so you need to be prepared and have resiliency and redundancy built in everything that you do. With that in mind, tomorrow I'll have a great guest on. I recommend you guys tune in for it. We'll be live at the same time as typical 12 noon Central Standard Time. Remember, you can always find information about our last or next upcoming live stream at TSPC Live. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.
revolution.